with me for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading Daniel 7 in preparation for David's teaching. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a human being and the mind of a human was given to it. And there before me was a second beast which looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side of its sides and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. And after that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had a large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the beasts, there before me was another horn, a little one, which came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a human being and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. Then I continued to watch because the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. Then I wanted to know the meaning of the fourth beast, which was different from all the others and most terrifying with its iron teeth and bronze claws. The beast that crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. I also wanted to know about the ten hordes, 
horns on its head and about the other horn that came up before which three of them fell. The horn that looked most imposing than the others and that had eyes and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I watched, this horn was waging war against the holy people and defeating them until the Ancient of Days came and pronounced judgment in the favor of the holy people of the Most High. And the time came when they possessed the kingdom. He gave me this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise, different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered into this, his hands for a time, times and a half a time. But the court will sit and his power will be taken away and completely destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, power, and greatness of all the kingdoms under heaven will be handed over to the holy people of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will worship and obey him. This is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter to myself. Lord, thank you for the reading of your word. I ask that you would anoint Pastor David as he brings forth this word to us, and I pray that each one of our hearts and mind will be uh, open to receive exactly what you have for us individually and collective as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. We turn this morning to the apocalypse. As you've noticed, we've reached the, the turning point in the book of Daniel. I said at the beginning that this book is really split kind of right down the middle. You have the first six chapters are the chronological story of Daniel and his friends as they try to live in the land of Babylon and figure out what is it like to live a faithful life in exile under an evil kingdom. And so that's the first six chapters, and it's the well-known stories of Daniel and the lion's den that we had last week. But now these last chapters, 7 through 12, are different. These chapters cover the apoc they're apocalyptic or at least the very least prophetic. You probably know the beginning of Daniel pretty well, but I bet even as we read it this morning, you start to thought, oh, wait, I don't know this book quite as well as I thought. And when I, you know, was originally feeling led um, by the Lord to, to go through the book of Daniel, I was excited for the first half, and I was pretty nervous for the second half. And I thought, well, it's good, because the first half is easier, so at least I'm going to have six weeks to kind of ramp up and be prepared, so by the time we get to seven, I, I shouldn't be as nervous, and I'll be really ready. Um, well, that time has come and gone, and we're here, and I'm still just about as nervous as I was when we started before. <laughs> and I'm nervous for a couple of different reasons. One of those is, you know, that Lots of different people, people who love God and worship Him and believe the truth, true things of God and trust in His Word, um, think differently when it comes to what do we believe about the end times or, or what does this vision mean? Uh, I mentioned this before years ago, which you may or may not remember, but you will remember it or find out over the next coming weeks. Um, I'm a little different than Pastor Brad. Um, as kind of far as how we interpret some of the things at, at the end and what eschatology means, we, we agree on the main things, but there's some particulars we disagree about. 
Even Pastor Rob and I disagree about some of this stuff as we've, we've talked about it. That's one of the things I love about our church is that we can disagree about smaller things as long as we agree on the main things and what is most important. But that's not, just, that's not the only reason I'm nervous about it. The other reason is just when you read these, you, you see how hard it is to understand some of these things in God's Word. Right? You can read, and I've been reading my children some of these stories. I read them, Daniel and the Lion's Den, just from the ESV, and they kind of, they got it. They get the main thing. If I read this chapter, they would be really confused, and I don't know if I would know how to explain it to my three-year-old. And so, that can be a temptation for us, right? We can just push it to the side. We can, well, I'm going to read through Daniel. I got through the first six chapters, come to seven. You know what? Maybe I'll just go back to James. Maybe we'll go to the Gospels. I'm going to read Jesus. I don't know what to do with this. This doesn't help me in my devotion time. But part of my conviction this morning really is that if you're a believer and you have the Holy Spirit within you, you can understand the most important things in God's Word. You don't need a seminary degree. You don't need me as a pastor. You don't need to have all of your theology and all of your understanding in history. I think you can understand the core of what this passage means. And so that's what we're going to try and do this morning is not just, well, what does this mean for the future and the apocalypse and for the end, but what does it mean for us today? In Duncan, Oklahoma in 2022, how can we apply this to our lives now? And what does this mean for us? That's what we're going to try and wrestle with. Um, so, what we're going to do is we're going we're to look at the beast, the son of man, and then finally our application. And we're going to talk about some things that we don't know, what we do know, and what we hope for. And so, we'll begin with point one on what we don't know. And so, if you're keeping notes in your blanks, what, what we don't know is we really don't know the identity of these beasts. Um, we, we don't know the identity of these beasts. I, I wrestled for a long time this week just trying to figure out what even do I make my first point because I don't even know what these beasts are. And I don't know how to explain it. I thought, well, you know what? That's just going to be it. We don't know what these beasts really are. But so we'll start and I'll kind of, this is intentional, I think. It's not just because I couldn't figure it out, but I think God's word intentionally leaves it ambiguous for us. But I'll show you how we get there. So right away, you see that this is a little different. In verse 1, chapter 7, it says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Well, you should pause and go, wait, I thought Darius was king right now. And Belshazzar died. Yeah, he died in between chapters 4 and 5. So this is where you see, again, the book of Daniel isn't just all chronological. Here, this vision seems to have taken place at some point in between 4 and 5, or maybe even a little bit in between 3 and 4. And Daniel has this dream. It says, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head. And he wrote down the dream and he told the sum of the matter. So unlike other visions that were given to the kings and was God's revelation to them, this appears to be God's revelation to Daniel and for his people. This isn't just for all of Babylon or for the leaders of Babylon. This is for the people of God. And so Daniel sees, and let's talk about the vision he sees in two. I saw my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and the four beasts came up out of the sea. So he sees these four different creatures that arise. And these aren't just regular beasts, but, but are great. This is going to be one of the problems that you read it because it keeps saying, you know, like a lion or like a bear or like a leopard. You need to put a little more emphasis on the like than on the bear and not just think, okay, bear, you know, okay, or, or lion, a leopard. No, no, no. These things are, are massive. So you need to picture more something like the size of Godzilla or King Kong or, or a kaiju thing just emerging out of the ocean. 
And the closest thing Daniel can think of is, I mean, I, that kind of looks like a bear. But not at all like a bear you would go see at the zoo in Oklahoma City. These are massive and terrifying creatures, and they appear out of the sea, which is an important symbol in the Bible. It's usually the sea is symbolic of the world. Especially in the prophets, they, they may speak of creatures like the Leviathan emerging from the, the chaos of the ocean and the sea and rising up. So these creatures aren't good things, which you can see from the rest, but right away you, you would know that if you were a Jew reading this. But if you look at where it says where they ultimately come from, it is the four winds of heaven that stir up the great sea. Because God's hand is ultimately behind them. They don't emerge to, to challenge God and to fight him just out of their own strength and their own power. It is God himself who seems to prepare them and rise them up and draw them out. This is one of the themes of the book of Daniel, that God is sovereign over everything, everywhere, all the time. And he is sovereign over even the arrival of these four beasts. So let's describe each of these beasts a little bit before we try and figure out what they are or why we don't quite know. Verse 4, the first one is like a lion, and it, but it has eagle's wings. And then as he looks, its wings get plucked off, don't seem to know by what, and it's lifted up off the ground and it stands up on two feet like a man and the mind of man is given to it. So it's like a lion, it's got wings, but the wings go away and now it starts walking around and lumbering and kind of talking and acting and behaving as if it's a human. That alone would be terrifying if I saw a regular lion do that, let alone something that looks like this. Verse 5, another beast, the second one, it's like a bear, and it's raised up on one side. It's got three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it's told by a voice, arise and devour much flesh. Now this raised on its side, it's kind of hard to translate. Depending on your translation, it may have taken it one way or the other. It could mean this bear is kind of like hunchbacked and deformed and weird. could mean it's almost like on its side, but somehow it's walking around. Or it could mean it's, it's up on two legs as well, kind of like the lion. And it already appears to be eating something. It's got ribs in its mouth. I'd assume if it's already a massive beast, these are probably massive ribs as well, which would be a disgusting and more terrifying sight. And then it's told, hey, go and eat even more. And after this, the next beast, the third one, it's like a leopard, but it has four wings, like a bird's wings on its back, and it has four heads. Again, that's why, you know, picturing a leopard isn't going to help you with this one. It's a four-headed massive leopard with four wings. But the fourth beast is the most terrifying of all. And it's so terrifying, Daniel doesn't even try to say what it looks like. He doesn't have any animal or any category he can go to. He just goes, um, here's the fourth beast, and it was terrifying and dreadful and really strong. And it had teeth that looked like iron and it devoured and broke into pieces and, and stamps out everything around it. It's different than all the other beasts that we saw. And it has ten horns. And if that's not terrifying enough, then there's another little horn, which you wonder, well, little horn, why is that one getting his attention? Well, because that little horn has eyes on it and a mouth and it's talking. I don't know how to draw that. I don't even know how to picture that in my head. But Daniel sees it, and understandably, he's shaken by that. You would be too. If you just had a dream like that and you didn't think it was from God, so, someone asked you, what was that? Calvin, usually when we wake up, you know, he asks me, hey, what did you dream about, Dad? And I, if I remember, I tell him if I don't, I make up something. Uh, but so, you know, if he said, hey, Dad, what did you dream about? Go, uh, I don't know, fourth beast. It, it was pretty scary. I don't know how to describe it. 
But so he wants to know what these means. We're, we're going to skip ahead a little bit. And so, you know, 15, it says, Daniel, my spirit was anxious within me and visions of my head alarmed me. Very understandable. We can see why he would feel this way. So in 16, he approaches somebody who's nearby and asks him the truth of this. He says, what is this? Can you explain this to me? I don't know what to do with this. Which should be interesting that Daniel doesn't know how to interpret it yet because all along he's always been able to interpret these visions. And so this, this person, presumably an angel, tells him and makes known the interpretation of these things. So the angel explains what it means in 17 and 18. And this is all the, most, almost the, the core of what the angel says. He says, these four great beasts or four kings or kingdoms who will arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. And that's, I don't know about you, but that's a frustrating interpretation. If I asked an angel and he spoke to me, I mean, that'd be great. I, I'm listening and hanging on every word. But I said, what does this mean? And that's all he gives me? Oh, these are about four kingdoms. Okay, well, I could have guessed that, but, you know, which ones? Can you help me when? Do I need to worry about one of these in particular? You know, what, what's going on? Because we all want to know. That's probably, as, you were, as Jan was reading it, you were thinking, well, what is this? What is this about? You know, we had other visions. We, we had the, the statues in Daniel 2. I knew, you know, I kind of had a good idea of which part of those I thought these were. Well, well which beast is what? Well, what are these? And all, you know, every vision before has kind of explained who these were. There are some who will take and say, well, you know, flip back to Daniel 2 with the statue and the four pieces, and this must be the same thing, because there's four and four, and there's some similarities and some overlap. So in, in chapter 2, you know, we had Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome. So maybe this is the same thing. First beast is Babylon, because, you know, mind of a man's given to it. It stands up. Well, it kind of sounds like... Um, Nebuchadnezzar, maybe, and, you know, then Persia's the bear, and, and Greece is the leopard. Four, yeah, there were four kings after Alexander. That could fit. And then Rome, because Rome's got to be the big one at the end. So it could be the same thing. And that certainly could be the correct interpretation. That's been the majority interpretation throughout church history, especially. Now, that's how people have, have generally kind of understood this. But the problem with that is that Daniel and the angel never identify who any of these beasts are. In all of those, and even in chapter 8, we'll see the very next one, we get two more beasts, and they're identified. And angel says, hey, this one's Greece, and that one's Mede, and Persia. And in Daniel 2, it's, hey, and this one, that one's Babylon. And then you can figure out the rest kind of after it. But here, he intentionally doesn't do that. And I think the angel leaves this ambiguous on purpose. But this is really frustrating with the fourth one, the fourth beast, because the fourth beast, especially from 23... When in 21, when it says this horn is making war with the saints and it prevails over them until the ancient of days comes and judgment is given and the time comes when the saints possess the kingdom. This sounds like the tribulation in the end. This sounds like the apocalypse at the very end of the story. And so it makes us go, well, when and what, what is this? Who are these? You know, maybe this is what we're, we're all waiting for. And because this beast, he goes to war with the saints of God, and he even seems to succeed. And the angel goes on. I, I won't read quite all of it again, but if you look at 25, he says he's going to speak words against the Most High. And he's going to wear out the saints of the Most High. And he's going to think to change the times and the law, and they'll be given to into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Our best guess is this is probably, you know, three and a half years that it seems like he is ruling and persecuting and terrifying and beating down the holy ones of God. This is what leads many to think in 
I'm kind of here too that this is probably at least in some sense describing the Antichrist and his kingdom. And even those who will say, no, I know who all these beasts are and the fourth one's Rome. It's like, well, that is Rome. But, you know, then there's kind of a, then we're waiting for Rome again. We're waiting for the Antichrist to come and to, and to lead this for the three and a half year period. But again, I think that we don't know exactly the identity of all of these. And I think it's on purpose. You know, I really hesitate to identify them um, because I, I think there is a sense in which these beasts really arise in every age. In, in every time and in every place. You know, there have been plenty more kings and nations um, and empires since Rome fell and collapsed. And there have been plenty of kings and kingdoms that have opposed the kingdom of God in a variety of places, at least in some sense like the fourth beast, then maybe not quite to the full extent. And it just makes me wonder as I was reading this, you know, how have Christians felt about this throughout time as they've read it? How did the Jews, but before Jesus came, when they were serving under the, the Greeks, and they were ruled by them, and there was a king named Antiochus Epiphanes, and he was persecuting the Jews heavily. How did they feel when they read this? In fact, some of them thought it had to have been about him, and they thought, hey, Daniel knew it. He was warning us. It's been fulfilled here. But what about Christians as they read this chapter, as they sat on their persecution of Nero, as the apostles were being martyred one by one, and Paul himself was beheaded, and Peter was crucified. What about Christians during World War I as they watched the world go to war for the first time and thought, this must be the end. Look at this. But then again, a couple decades later in World War II, how did the confessing church in Germany, the church that opposed Hitler and the Nazis, that were persecuted and killed and had to flee, how did they feel when they read this? I'm sure they read in the fourth beast and thought, ah, this is happening here now. I can see it. What about our brothers and sisters in North Korea and China or India? Or our brothers and sisters in Ukraine now gathering to worship in bomb shelters and in the ruins of their cities and places of worship? How do they feel and how do they interpret this? Or what comfort does it bring to them? At the end of the day, too, no matter how you do this, there's a sense in which all of us are still waiting at the very least for that fourth beast to come. So even if you think all the ones have come, I still think there are beasts and kingdoms in the meantime that oppose God and his people. And I think this is left ambiguous to remind us that these beasts are going to continually arise up to fight God and try and destroy his people. If the angel doesn't identify it, but he reminds Daniel, again, angel doesn't seem to be that concerned about these beasts whatsoever. In 18, he says, but the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom, and they'll possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. It's a lot of repetition. It's not because the angel's using bad grammar. It would pop up if he was writing on Microsoft Word, and spell check popped up. You need to delete this. This is, repet- you know, this is not good. This isn't good speaking. or not speaking well. No, it's to remind us what the end of the story is. The end is that God wins. His kingdom endures. All these beasts fade away and die. And Part of my conviction in this is that I think this chapter was not given to us so that we could perfectly identify who all of these beasts are. So I don't think you have to have a good understanding of ancient history in order to know the Bible and apply it and read it 
and come to salvation. It's a good thing. It's helpful. Absolutely. It's colorful. It can fill in the gaps. But I don't think it's even necessary to understand this chapter. I think even a youth or a child in the back who knows Jesus and is filled with the Holy Spirit could read this and kind of understand. You know, these beasts, they look like nations, and there's plenty of them that are going to come and go. And I also think it does this so we can recognize that the beasts are all around us. That whoever these are, or if they're just foreshadowing some, or there's dual fulfillment, every single one of these beasts will pass. They might feel significant and really important in the moment as they devour and eat ribs and crush. They might think that they're incredible and wondrous. They may even spread their propaganda about how wonderful utopian paradises they are or beacons of freedom or whatever it is that they want to call themselves. But ultimately, all of every kingdom other than the kingdom of God is just a beast. It's horrifying and lacking in power and one day will pass away when the king comes and his kingdom reigns. There's a reason they're called beasts. You know, this is, I heard some say I really liked, you know, before some of these visions were just showing and representing the kingdoms from their point of view, but this is from God's point of view. They aren't impressive statues or anything mighty. They are just monstrous and gross and they'll all fade and be killed. So that's a beast, but I want to turn our attention from, you know, maybe not what we don't know, but what we do know. What we do know is we do know in this, we know the identity of the Son of Man. We know the identity of the Son of Man. You notice the, the beginning, the middle part that I kind of skipped over, that's in the middle important because it's significant. There's oftentimes scripture will do this, it'll, it'll put things that are, that are important or it wants to get your attention right in the middle of the chapter or in the middle of the section so that it can draw you in or as you can see it. So before, in verse 9, before we get to the Son of Man, we see the Ancient of Days and it says, and I looked, thrones were placed and the Ancient of Days took his seat. The Ancient of Days is God. Says Yahweh the Almighty, El Shaddai. We, we just sang earlier a bunch of the names of God. Lanchion of Days is another great one. That's got to be, it's up there. I haven't ranked them all, but I would think it's got to be in my top five for most awesome names of God. Ancient of Days. So the Ancient of Days comes in and his heavenly court is arranged. All the thrones are put out. All the seats are, are gathered and angels and elders and people of the heavenly court come out and the Ancient of Days comes in and he sits on his throne above all of it. And this personification of God and his clothing was white as snow. And his head, it was like a hair, like pure wool and his throne was fiery flames. And its wheels were burning fire. And a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. I don't know how to picture that either, that his, his throne, he's literally seated on flame. And it is just burning and raging all around him as he just sits in control. And as he sits there, a thousand thousands serve him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The, the way those thousands are mentioned is not to give you an exact number as you, you can realize. It's kind of frustrating. It's just there are thousands of thousands of thousands on thousands. It is innumerable and immeasurable. The amount of people that gather around the ancient of days to bow down and serve him. To wait and to do his bidding. And you notice when is this all happening to? This is happening as the, the beast, the fourth beast is lumbering around and doing its work. 
It's making war, and it even seems to be it's winning over the saints. But the Ancient of Days is just sitting on his throne aflame, fully in control. Not a worry in the world. And when he sits, what happens is the court sits in judgment, and the books were opened. What are these books? When the books are opened in judgment, that is not a good thing. It is the book of life and the book of judgment is open to see, okay, judgment time. Where are the beasts going? Where are the people going? If, if your book, if your name isn't written in the book of life, then your judgment is at hand. And while all this is happening, again, the beast just seems to be talking. God is sitting, and there are thousands of thousands of thousands times 10,000 all around and 11. And look, the sound of the great words of the horn is speaking. He's still just running his mouth while the Ancient of Days is on the throne. And then right away, and as I looked, the beast was killed. Body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. While this inspiring scene is going on, the horn seems to still be spewing blasphemy against the Ancient of Days. And it doesn't even seem like there's a thought. There's not a battle. God doesn't sit on the throne and ask, I need a champion. Who can go defeat this beast? I'm so scared. It's just, beast is dead. It's done. Mid-sentence. It's cut off and its body's burned and passed away. All that bluster and wonder and power was nothing compared to the ancient of days. And then something else comes in 13. After they're burned with fire and the rest of the beasts, all their dominions taken away and their lives are somehow prolonged for a season and time. Again, that's part of why I think I don't know when these are because are all these beasts at the same time and they're here and they're not here. Moving on, 13, we see in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Into the throne room the Son of Man enters. And we do know who the Son of Man is. The Son of Man is Jesus. When Daniel read this, or, or later the Jews would have read it, they were waiting for who the Son of Man is. I'm sure they were concerned with their persecutors or their, the people who were dominating them and crushing their nation, but they were primarily concerned with who is the Messiah and when is he coming? Is he here yet? Will it be during my lifetime? Will it be during the lifetime of my children? When is the Son of Man going to come? But we know who the Son of Man is and we know that he already came. And the Son of Man, it is Jesus' favorite title for himself. Jesus almost never calls himself the Messiah. He almost never refers to himself as the Christ. But he does repeatedly call himself the Son of Man. I counted 69 times in the Gospels that Jesus refers to himself or says Son of Man to refer to himself or the Messiah. Maybe you've wondered in the past like I have and thought, that's an interesting phrase. Like, what is that? Why are you calling yourself that, Jesus? Is that just, you know, mentioning the incarnation, how you are fully God, but you're fully man? Is it just kind of trying to remind us that you're, that you're both? No, it is fulfilling Daniel 7. He's saying, this is who I am. I am the son of man who came before the ancient of days, and all dominion and glory and power is mine. That is what Jesus 
does. He is fulfilling this. And at his trial in Mark 14, it's one of the many times he does it. He's asked before his crucifixion, are you the Messiah? Do you really think you're the Christ? And he says, I am the son of man and you are going to see me lifted up and riding on the clouds of heaven. He quotes this verse here. And the high priest knows what he's saying and responds by tearing his clothes and calling it blasphemy because he realizes that Jesus is claiming to be the Son of Man and claiming to be the Messiah. This is why Jesus calls himself this. So the, the question and our focus even, I think, when we read this chapter is not to just be concerned with who are the beasts, but who is the Son of Man? Who is our Savior? Who is the one who will come and will win? Whoever these beasts are or were or will be, they're all going to die and burn away and fade. But the Son of Man will rule and reign forever, forever and ever. What does it say about us if we get so bored with Jesus that we care more about studying his enemies than we do studying our Savior? And the Son of Man, his kingdom is different than the kingdom of the beasts. 14, he's given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion extends everywhere. The beasts claim to have dominion over the nations or over the world, but their empire all has edges. Look at any globe. You can just have the, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Persians, and the Romans have their empire splayed on it, and you'll realize there's a lot of stuff that's not covered. Even the great British Empire that covered the known world, as they said too, well, you can look, there's a lot of places that wasn't theirs. And it's not theirs anymore. But God's rules, all people, all nations, all languages, everywhere. And he's not the king of just one nation. He's not just the king of one people or one language. He's the king of all nations, all tribes, all people, everywhere and every place. And his dominion is everlasting. It will not pass away. His kingdom can't be destroyed. All these beasts fade and they're burned, but Jesus does not. Even when the Son of Man was killed and put into the grave, He didn't stay there. He came back. And the kingdom of God, it will extend as long as time goes on. There's no kingdom after Him. There's no Son of Man 2. Or Son of Man 3 or 4 or 5. Or Junior, there is just the Son of Man, Jesus Today, yesterday, tomorrow, forever. The strange reality about the kingdom of the Son of Man and the Son of God and Jesus is this, this now and not yet reality. Because the kingdom of God is here. It is here now this morning as we, we gather as an embassy of the kingdom to worship and proclaim our Savior and our King, that we don't worship any other flag or bow before any other ruler other than Jesus and His King and His kingdom. And it is here, but it's also not here completely because there are other rulers and nations and those who defy his rule. We may still be waiting for beasts to come. Jesus himself, he defied expectations and the expectations of the Jews and the religious leaders of his day who were waiting for the Son of Man because they read this and they thought, well, great, he's going to come and immediately these other beasts and kingdoms will all be killed and he'll rule and reign and that's going to be great for us. But he didn't come quite like this. You know, even his disciples, you know, I'm sure they may, we don't, I don't know this, but if they would have gathered, we know they were confused even by Jesus when he told them. But if they read Daniel 7 and he said, Jesus, you, you say you're the son of man, but there's some stuff in here it looks like you're supposed to do. And I don't see you doing it yet. 
And yet Jesus came and He said, hey, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. Even saying that, I would have flipped back and said, well, Jesus, I, I don't see it in Daniel 7. It looks like we're all supposed to serve you. What do you mean? But God fulfilled it but in part. But the kingdom of God came with Jesus. It fell from heaven at Pentecost with the arrival of the Holy Spirit. But the kingdom of God doesn't rule like the nations of the world. And Jesus didn't come primarily to bring a political kingdom or an earthly kingdom. He came to bring a spiritual kingdom. He came to deliver us not from the oppression of nations, but from the oppression of sin and death. And to bring us salvation because he knew that is what you need more than you need freedom from other people is you need freedom from sin and you need eternal life. Now, he will come again to bring the rest, but he only came for part now. And his kingdom is not, the kingdom of God is not defined by its power and might in the way that the world would do it. The power of God isn't found in his armies, but yet it was found in its humility and its suffering. Now, our power isn't found in, in victory, but through the death of the Son of Man and our God. And all throughout this passage, the saints suffer and they're at war and they lose. They're losing. But they're not losing because God isn't in control. It's just waiting. Because even when it looks like we're losing, we know what the end of the story is. Because Jesus will return again and then they will taste victory. The important thing for us to gather from, from this passage, I think the main point of it is that we know that Jesus is the Son of Man. That is who we worship. That is what our life is to be built around. We don't have to know everything else as long as we know who Jesus is. You can get everything else wrong, but do not get Jesus wrong. Because if you get all the other stuff right, if you figure out every detail of eschatology, every detail of theology, but you never give your life to Jesus, you never repent of your sins, you have missed the point of all of it. Don't miss Jesus. So we do know the identity of the Son of Man. Our, our last blank, if you're keeping notes in your bulletin, is that we know, we hope, and we know that no beast will win. No beast will win. The beast will rage against God's people. They rage today. They rage in places where Christians have to work, worship in secret. Then they rage in Afghanistan where believers are killed if there are any left at all. It rages in China, where the church is underground and hidden. It rages in Russia and the Ukraine. It rages in India and North Korea. It rages everywhere. But what we can know is that no beast will defeat the kingdom of God. We don't have to fear. We don't have to wonder that war may come. Fourth beast may come in our lifetime. It could be here today at some point. I'm not going to bother to try and figure that out because I don't feel the need to. What I do know is whoever it is, whenever it is, it will not win. It cannot. And death to a Christian is no more defeat than the death of the Son of Man was on the cross. The kingdom of God endures forever. And it endures even when the world thinks it's won. Even when the world thinks it's over. In the words of Tertullian, one of the early apostolic church fathers, he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It's the seeds of our victory. Because we win not through might, we win through Jesus. And we don't, we don't even have to experience victory to know that it's coming. 
to know that it will be here. Believers, we have nothing to fear in this world. There is no beast that could come, no antichrist that is, could rage, no enemy that is too big for the Son of Man to conquer. And he will, whenever, whoever. We have nothing at all to fear. Verse 25, though, it reminds us that, you know, this, the saints will get worn out. They'll be beaten down and they'll be given into the hand of this beast for a time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years. And during those whole three and a half years, this beast, I'm sure, is going to think that it's winning. Think that it's won. Just like Satan thought that he won those three days our Lord was in the grave. But he didn't win. And God was still in control. The Ancient of Days was on his throne. And as this whole book of Daniel is about, and indeed this whole book from Genesis to Revelation, our God is sovereign over the nations, over everything all the time. Nations only have power as God gives it and as he allows it. And what that means is no matter how loud the beast raged, no matter how horrifying the news is that you see, no matter what happens in your life, we can know no beast will beat the kingdom of God. Jesus will win. Every church in our country could close its doors tomorrow, and it doesn't mean the kingdom of God will fail. The kingdom of God will still win in the end. So we have nothing to fear because we know the end of the story. And if you know the end of the story, you can get through any kind of discomfort, can't you? Uh, I've discovered this, or Bray and I have, you know, since we've had kids, we can't really watch things the same way. Never really, stuff didn't ever bother me much before. I just grew up watching a lot of stuff with my dad or things that were violent, and it just, you know, I, it never really bothered me at all. But then suddenly I discovered not long after Calvin was born, I watched something, and then there was something, a movie where a child died. I immediately had to turn it off, and I went and threw up, and it affected for two weeks. I couldn't get it out of my mind. And so now I've discovered and learned is that experience continue to happen. Oh, okay, I just can't handle that anymore. So now anytime a child is introduced into any story or it looks like they're in danger, I have to pause and I've got to go look up and see how this ends. Okay, because if there's going to be, there's going to be danger, then I can't do it. I got to tap out now because I'm not going to be able to handle it. But if I know it's going to be fine, then I can get through it. You know, oh, okay. Well, baby's going to be fine. There's even something I was reading yesterday. It was a book and I wanted Brie to read it. And I said, okay, just want you to know it's going to look really bad it's going to look like this baby's in a lot of danger, and it's probably, they're going to fake you out and make you think the baby's dead, but the baby's fine. It's all going to end happy, I promise. Just, just get through to the end. It's going to be worth it. Look at on a much greater scale, no matter how dark today seems, no matter how dark tomorrow is or the years or decades to come, you don't have to worry. I can tell you now, it's going to be okay in the end. The Ancient of Days is on his throne, and the Son of Man will return one day, and every beast will be defeated and burned, and every knee will bow, and every sad thing will come untrue as Christ reigns. And heaven condescends down to earth, and everything is made as it should have been in the Garden of Eden again. That is our end. And we can know with confidence that's the end of the story. And if we know that's where it ends, we can endure and get through any suffering we face today. It doesn't mean it will be easy. It doesn't mean it will be fun. It doesn't mean we will enjoy it. And it doesn't mean today will be easy or great. Today and tomorrow and the next decade of your life may be filled with nothing but horror. But you can know what it will be at the end of the story. 
And the end is more beautiful than you could ever imagine or dream. So in summary of where we've been this morning, you know, we, we don't exactly know the identity of the beast, but we do know the identity of the Son of Man. And we do know that the Son of Man is our hope and he will defeat every beast and every kingdom. And that the end of the story will be greater than you could possibly imagine. So I don't know about you, but I'm okay not knowing who these beasts are as long as I know who Jesus is. Because that's what's going to get me through the long, dark night and what's going to get me through when suffering comes. So I hope you know who Jesus is. I'm going to invite our worship team to come up and lead us in song once more. Lord, I ask that you would help us to fix our eyes on you. Jesus, as suffering comes and enters into our lives, and enters into our world, Lord, as we see war and horror, we ask that the Son of Man would come. Would you return? Lord, we pray for peace, not just peace now, today, not just peace in the Ukraine, but Lord, we pay, pray for peace in the whole earth, the peace that can only come because you have come. And you are ruling and reigning. Lord, would you help us to keep our eyes on you? Lord, would we not be anxious or alarmed or terrified by what we don't know, but would we have a sound and confident hope in what we do know? Because we know you. And because we love you. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Let you stand as we worship the Son of Man once more. Amen. And our, our benediction for for all of us, and especially for Doug and Dever this month, is from Romans fifteen thirteen. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Abound in hope. God bless you. Go in peace.